you're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. I wonder if you all know someone like this, okay? Somebody who's had a ton of different life experiences. They always have a story. No matter what cool thing you have just experienced, they've got a story to relate to it, right? So like you come back from break and you're telling them about the ski trip to Utah that your family took. And they're like, oh my gosh, that's so cute. That reminds me of when my family went to Switzerland. And you're like, thanks, bro. Or uh, you're like, hey, I was at the Bills Chiefs game and I saw Taylor Swift and Travis and I got a selfie with them. Would you like to see it? And they're like, oh my gosh, yeah, of course. I'd love to see them, power couple. You show it to them, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was with them, like, I set them up, right? Like, that's cute. You got a picture. I set them up. Look at this text thread that I've got with Jason, the brother, where we're talking about the relationship. Way too deep. Okay. Um, you, you pick, you're, you're picking up what I'm putting down, right? Like, you know this kind of person. Maybe you are that kind of person. Okay, picture them. The rarely impressed because they have so many experiences person. Now here's where this gets absurd. I am not saying that Jesus is in any way like those people. However, the Jesus that we see in the Gospels is rarely, if ever, impressed. And it makes sense, right? Like, he raises people from the dead. He feeds thousands of people at a time. He heals sicknesses. It's going to take a lot to impress this guy. But there are a few occasions when we see Jesus wowed by something. And every single time it has to do with the amount of or lack of faith that those people have. So Roman centurion, Roman military official comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, my son's sick. I need you to heal him. I don't even need for you to come to my house. You just say the word. He's going to be okay. And Jesus is awestruck. Jesus is wowed by this man's faith. Or Jesus is going back to his hometown, and it says, the text says, that he cannot perform many miracles in his hometown because of the lack of faith, and that he is wowed, he is awestruck by the lack of faith. It's clearly something that is very important to Jesus. And in the book of Hebrews, the author is dealing with humans' struggles, humanity's struggles to believe. It's written to people who are tempted to turn from their newfound faith in Jesus, to turn from their newfound faith in Jesus and instead look to things that are more present and tangible and right in front of them that they can put their trust in instead. And the chapter that we are studying this semester is chapter 11. It lays at the very heart of this book. It is the classic, the main text on the nature of faith. What is faith? How do we get faith? How do we lose faith? How do we grow our faith? And it does so by giving a definition of faith, and then it just gives case study after case study of how God brought about faith in the individuals that are listed 
in Hebrews 11. And this is so important for us in this room because what you see as you look at the people's lives who are listed is you see that they are very normal, not superhuman. They are normal people who God uses their unique story to move in and shape a great faith in them. They have stories that we can relate to. And I want to study this because I want you to see as we look at these people's lives that God also is after you. He, because he is after your complete and your total trust. And he is using every moment and minutia of your individual story to also shape a great faith in him. But tonight, I merely want to look at verses 1 through 3 and define what faith is. Look with me at first, uh, verse 3. We're going to start with this, that faith begins with knowledge. Faith begins with knowledge. Verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now that word understand, it comes from the Greek nous, and tonight I get to, get to use my education a little bit. We get to talk some Greek. So it's the Greek nous. And this word has to do with the mind, with thinking, with reason. It brings up the idea of looking at evidence and drawing a conclusion. So right here at the outset in verse 3, faith is being linked with knowledge, with rationality, with looking at and evaluating evidence. Sophomores and up, y'all know that last year I killed Santa Claus for Bear. Uh, Bear's my five-year-old son. Um, It was a sermon. Bear came to large group that night. It was great. And for who knows why, but in the sermon... I, uh, to make a point, I said, Santa is not real. And somewhere in like the third-ish row, like right in there, I just heard someone go. <gasps> and then I was like, oh my gosh, what, what did I just do? Just killed Santa for my son. Uh, good news, Bear was not paying attention. But it didn't matter because this year, Santa still died. Santa still died. Bear kept asking us this winter break. Mom and Dad, why am I not allowed to go into the closet in your all's room? Mom and Dad, why did you just buy wrapping paper? I thought Santa brought the gifts. And he says it with this, that grin, that face. He was asking, Mom and Dad, um, Santa's supposed to come down the chimney, right? Our chimney's fake. (laughs) And maybe most, worst of all, was Christmas morning... We woke up, and Bear caught me eating the cookies that he had left out. Okay? I'm not proud of what I did. I'm not proud of it. All right. The young stud no longer believes in Santa Claus. Why? Because he looked at the evidence. Bear looked at the evidence, and the evidence clearly indicated that faith in Santa is illegitimate. So what am I supposed to do? Just tell him, Bear, you just need to believe. Ignore the evidence. Ignore the cookie crumbs. Just believe. No, that's blind faith. And yet that is exactly how the Christian faith is so often framed. To believe that God exists is to ignore the evidence. You, you Christians, you have blind faith. 
But as Tim Mackey, founder of the Bible Project, points out, this is a very this very Western conception of blind faith is not Christian. It's stupidity. Verse three begins by saying that faith begins with knowledge, with looking at the evidence and saying, what is the best explanation for what we see? Faith begins with bare looking at the evidence and saying, no, Santa must not be real because of the evidence that I have gathered. Okay, now run with me for a second. That's still a faith claim for Bear to say that. Because Bear and no one in this room can prove that Santa does not exist. You can gather evidence. You can then generate a hypothesis that makes the most sense of that evidence that Santa does not exist. And we would mostly agree with you. That is how knowledge works. That is how science works. When Sir Isaac Newton sat under the apple tree and an apple fell and hit him in the head, he said, I want to know why this happens. So he generated a hypothesis. A force, let's call it gravity, exists. And then I'm going to test my hypothesis out by seeing, does it have explanatory power for the world that I see around me? Can it explain? Can it make sense of the evidence? That is how science works. That is how knowledge works. Start by assuming this theory, see if it makes sense. In other words, you are starting with faith. To take that one step farther, faith is required to know anything. The point is, everyone has faith. The divide is not between religious people on one hand, people who have faith, and then everyone over here lives by reason. No, everyone has faith. And that is especially true in the point that the author is making in verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Y'all, how do we decide where life comes from? To this question, everyone has faith. Everyone has a premise about where the universe comes from. You cannot prove it. By induction, it is a matter of faith, of positing a hypothesis and then evaluating, does this hypothesis, does this faith statement make sense of what we see? Either what is seen, the the matter, material, universe, world around you, either that came from nothing and created everything, or what is seen, the material world, was created by someone who is not seen. Those are the only two options, the only two places that you could put your faith in. Either matter is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, which science tells us, no, it is not, or the material world has an origin, who is in, a creator at its origin, who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Those are the only two camps that you can ultimately fall in about what, where you put your faith on where does life come from. Now, the average secular person starts with the premise that there is no supernatural. There is no God and everything came from nothing. The material world is all there has ever been and all there will ever be. A Christian is someone who looks at that same material world, at the evidence, and they say, no, that doesn't make sense. That is irrational 
to believe that there is no supernatural and no God, no creator behind these things. It doesn't make sense. A Christian is someone who looks at the universe and says, okay, if there is no God, there is less mathematical chance of organic life springing from inorganic matter than for an airplane factory to explode and to find a perfectly formed, ready-to-fly Boeing 747. Or a Christian is someone who looks at the fundamental values that we all hold, that love is a real thing, that justice is a real thing, that equality of human beings is a real thing, that genocide is wrong, that every human being, no matter how weak, how poor, how marginalized, ought to be protected and valued as an equal. Those are things that we would all say these are true. Those are true statements. We hold to these values. But a Christian is someone who looks at those values and says, these only make sense if there is a God who also holds those values and he has created us in his image. You see, it's rational. Faith begins with reason. And so for some of you, the call of this passage is that for the first time, maybe you need to actually start thinking. To truly start thinking a ruthless examination of the facts and see where the evidence takes you. And if you believe that there is no God, then you are either going to be led to an extremely depressing and unlivable conclusion that all of the things that you hold dear, that I just listed, from the fact that love is real to the fact that genocide is wrong, that those things are illogical or irrational without the existence of a God. Or you will reach a place where to live, you have to contradict your faith that there is no God. I know that's, I'm, that's kind of all over the place. Here's, I think an illustration might help. I just finished a fascinating book called Why Fish Don't Exist. Did you guys know that? Fish is no longer an actual category. Crazy. Look at it. Google that. It's wild. Anyway, <laughs> book's title, Why Fish Don't Exist. And in it, the author, her name's Lulu. She asks her dad, who's a biologist, She's seven years old. They're standing on the beach. It's supposed to be this really sweet moment. And she says, Dad, what's the meaning of life? And he, an atheist, to the core says, Lulu, big smile on his face. There is no meaning to life. You have no significance. You have no meaning. We are one of many species that the universe has created by time and chance. And our existence, too, will die out like everything else. We have no meaning. Seven-year-old Lulu hears that. And the rest of her life, the rest of uh, her life as she begins writing this book, she's on a quest to discover how can I live a meaningful life if that is true? How can I live and not give in to despair if what my dad told me is true? And she finds a guy who's going to be her hero, a guy named David Starr Jordan. He's the first president of Stanford University. It's the Tennessee of California. Sorry, that was bad. Anyway, he becomes her hero. And it's because he, uh, also materialist, atheist, he seems to have this unwavering ability to still hold on to hope and not give in to despair, even if there is no God and there is no meaning. And so she at first finds him to be very compelling. But then in studying his life, she learns two very disturbing things. One... Uh, the guy most likely killed the wife of the founder of Stanford. And then two, 
he was a huge proponent of eugenics, which is the uh, belief that to advance our species, we should systemically kill off people for uh, any reason that we would deem them not fit for carrying on human life into perpetuity. So she learns these two things and she's shocked and she's like, this man can no longer be my hero. This is awful. But the problem was there was no justice while this man lived because he died a hero in the minds of most. So she's revolted. She's disgusted. I mean, how can anyone support the killing of the weak and the defenseless? And so she wants justice. But her book ends with this gut-wrenching realization that if there is no God and matter is all there is, then her longing for justice, her longing for meaning, it's logically inconsistent with there being no God. So she has to make a faith claim because that's unlivable. She just says, listen, human beings must have value. I don't know why. I can't ground that in the world around me. I can't reason myself to that, but I know that they must have value. What is this? We say she's right, but her approach getting there is irrational. It's not seeking understanding. I could go on here all night. If you have questions, let's talk. I'll buy you a coffee. Point is, faith begins with understanding. Secondly, faith becomes conviction. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. Another Greek word for things not seen, pragmaton. It means past things. The conviction of past things. Living in light of what is not in front of your face right now. You see, faith is not merely a matter of intellectual cognition, just understanding, thinking that something is true. It's living in light of that thing. It's the good old-fashioned trust fall. So let's say I called Emily Crutcher up to the stage. I'm not going to. You can stay there. Let's say I called her up, and I was like, Crutcher, um, trust fall. And she was like, yeah, I got you, bro. And so she puts out her arms. She says, Matt, do you trust me? And I say, yes, of course I trust you. You can, you can totally catch me. And she says, well, do it. And I don't do it. You see, my knowledge that she could catch me. It does not become faith until I actually release and fall. My knowledge doesn't become faith until I act on it. Faith is living in light of what you deem to be true. It's C.S. Lewis who says there would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Faith involves commitment to what you believe to be true. But another meaning of this word conviction here is that it means evidence or to be convinced by demonstration. It's this idea of finding certainty in what you believe as you commit to it. Finding certainty in what you believe as you commit to it. Again, I think an illustration might help. So purely imaginative, but let's say that you knocked out one of your front teeth when you were in high school in a soccer game and the dentist implanted a new tooth in the front of your mouth but they didn't do a great job. Like the tooth is a little bit short. It's kind of discolored. A former student uh, shamed you by calling it a snaggle tooth and laughing at you. Purely hypothetical has nothing to do with me. Anyway, you look in the mirror, your wife looks at you and says, listen, I think it's time to get that thing fixed. Purely imaginative. So you begin researching dentists in town. You're looking for who can do the best job. So first it begins with a rational process. 
gathering information, facts, recommendations, research, understanding. And then when you've come to understand, there comes a point where you have to make a decision. When you have to act based on your conviction, you have to make the decision. This is the right dentist for me. So you book an appointment, you commit. And then you go to the office and you lay yourself out on that terrifying chair where they shine the bright light in your face and you can see nothing and then you open your mouth and then they're all of a sudden putting like drills in your mouth and it's terrifying. And if that dentist was indeed trustworthy, worthy of your faith, then and only then does your certainty that you made the right decision grow. You had faith that they were a good dentist based on your knowledge. Then you committed laid yourself out there, made yourself vulnerable, and it's only then after the operation, after committing, that you find certainty. You see, here's the point. You can never reason yourself into certainty. You will only find certainty after committing, making yourself vulnerable to the object of your trust, acting on your faith, on your knowledge. Here's what I want you to take away from this point. We live in the South. Many people profess to believe in Christ. But what influence does their hope, does their claim to faith have in their life? Or does it stay in the realm of knowledge? Just something that you assent to. Real faith necessarily involves conviction, a living in light of what you believe. So does Jesus get his say about your life? If you say that you believe, does Jesus get his say about your life? If you say that he is indeed the king, will you submit to his kingship in your sexuality, in your Friday nights, in your relationships, in your private life, in what you look at? But also, does his say, will you trust him with what he has done for you? He says that he has fully paid for all of your sins. Will you trust that and release the guilt and the shame that somehow makes you feel like you are paying for the things that you have done in the past? He says that he loves you and that not a hair can fall from your head without the will of his father in heaven. He says that he loves you and that the petals in the field in all of their splendor, that the birds in the air who his father feeds You are of inestimable more value than those things and he will care for you and provide for you and there is nothing that you will lack because he loves you and cares for you. Will you trust that? This is conviction, commitment to him, living in light of what you believe. And when you do this, Hebrews 11 verse one is saying that is when you will begin to taste certainty. So tonight, if you are riddled by doubts, riddled by doubts, hanging on by a thread of hope. What if you took the advice of C.S. Lewis, who says, why don't you just begin to act as if you believed? And then you will begin to taste the certainty of what you believe. This is not to say that doubt is not a very real component of the Christian life. Christians for the last 2,000 years have had something called the dark night of the soul when they have had tremendous doubt. And that has been something that God has used to shape and to grow their faith. And we'll talk about that another night. But for now, faith begins with understanding. Faith becomes conviction. 
And then finally, faith results in commendation. Verse 2. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Commendation. It's a stamp of approval, of acceptance, a declaration that you have done well, I am proud of you, and I accept you. I want you to pause for a moment. You don't have to close your eyes or anything weird. We're not a cult. But I do want you to pause for a second. And I want you to think deeply about how much you are longing to hear the creator of the universe look at you and say, I am proud of you. I accept you. I am pleased with you. You have my welcome. I accept you. And maybe that sounds like a bunch of mumbo jumbo and you're like, what? But I really want you to wrestle with that for a second. You were created to live every moment of every day with that stamp of approval in the midst of your heart, on the forefront of your mind. To know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your creator looks at you and he smiles upon you. You were made to have his commendation. But because of our sin and our rebellion, we are separated from God and our performance does not gain his commendation. Instead, it receives his condemnation. And so something in you will never rest until it receives this commendation, though, to hear that you are approved of. It is part of your design. It's tucked down somewhere deep in the Instagram posting, the hundreds of likes that for a second they really do seem to quench this, this longing for commendation. It's what is somehow buried deep in there in uh, getting a bid or getting initiated into your fraternity or sorority, being accepted by a group of peers, an authority figure who welcomes you and says, we accept you. That's a good thing. It's tucked in the longing to impress parents and teachers. Everyone in here is desperate for an authority outside of yourself to look at you and tell you that you are commended, that you have done well, that you are accepted and approved of. It is inescapable, and you are exhausting yourself trying to find it. And the truth is that you will never gain it. No matter how good you look, how well you perform, how disciplined, fun, respected, successful you become, nothing will ever satisfy your longing for commendation. Even when you turn to things in the religious realm, crushing Bible studies, going to RUF, fighting sin, being self-disciplined, doing those things still will not satisfy your longing for commendation. That is how deep our sin runs. Simply, we are separated from God from ever receiving his commendation. But that is why Hebrews chapter 11 is so remarkably beautiful. This chapter does not hold up the lives of people who received God's commendation because of how well they ran the race. These are not beautiful people who lived beautiful lives and Instagrammed amazing pictures of their life and obedience to Jesus with Bible verses. These are messy people. These are real people. These are actual people who made huge mistakes, massive mistakes. People who that you and I would look at them and when we do look at them, you will say they don't deserve commendation. They deserve condemnation. By faith, they received their commendation. It has always, only, and ever will be through faith, through trusting in God and his promises, that you can receive his commendation. 
It's through trusting Jesus and trusting his performance that you receive God's commendation. You see, your faith, it unites you to Jesus Christ. It unites you to his performance, to his perfect life of loving God and loving others. It connects you to his death on your behalf, taking the condemnation that you deserve. And this is offered to you. To place your trust, your hope, your faith in Christ. And when united to him, connected to him by faith, God views you as if you had already lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. God views you as if you had already died the death that Jesus died. To pay the debt for the sin that you owe Christ, owe God. All because you're connected to Christ by faith. And he did this. He freely offers you his commendation by faith because your God loves you. Skipping ahead to the end of this series, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Let me read it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those are the people that we're going to be talking about this semester, people who already lived the life of faith. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That is, in a simplest definition, what faith is, looking to Jesus. Here's the key part. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you hear that? The reason that God became a man, came to earth, lived a perfect life, and then died the death that you deserve is because you were his joy. He loves you. Your God loves you. And he gave himself up in order to have you. What a freaking audacious thing to believe. That your God loves you. What a ruthless trust to have. And how much faith is required to have all of this? Only the smallest. I want you to imagine, and I'm going to close, I'm going to be done, but I want you to imagine that you're falling off a cliff several stories up. You're falling right over the edge. And you look out and there's a branch right there. Okay? How much faith, how much trust is required for that branch to save your life? How strong does your faith have to be? You could have all the doubts in the world. You could be thinking the whole time, I'm going to die, this isn't going to work. How much trust is required, though? Merely enough to reach out and to grab it. So long as you grab hold, you will be saved. And the same is true of us. It's not about how strong you believe in Jesus. It's not about the quality of your faith, how well you're walking. It's about the object of your faith and how strong he is. So long as you grab hold of him by faith, he has you. Will you trust him? You might not be there yet tonight, and that's okay. We're going to spend this semester looking at these lives of Old Testament saints that were messy, broken, real people. And we're going to see how God worked faith out in them. RUF is a community of students that is trying to learn how to love God, love people, and love the University of Tennessee. The way that we do that is to create safe places for students of all types and backgrounds to process the story of Jesus and to learn how to integrate their lives into his story. 
For more information, follow us on Instagram at UTK underscore RUF or visit our website at www.ruf.org slash UTK.